0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Throughout our podcast, we have an ongoing mission to bring fresh ideas and innovative perspectives on the relational sciences and insights on how neurobiology impacts your everyday life. And today, we're going to continue with this theme and apply it specifically to sex and sexuality. I'm Ann Kelly, and I think you're really going to enjoy our guest today. Today, I get the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. Dr. Katahakis is the founding director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, California. She's also a clinical sexologist and a fairly prolific writer in the subject of sexuality. For example, she's the co-author of the award-winning Mirror of Intimacy, Daily Reflections on Emotional and Erotic Intelligence. And she's the author of Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation, a Neurobiology-Informed Holistic Treatment. So as you can see, she has an extensive knowledge and expertise in neurobiology, affect regulation, and sexuality. And from that base, we engage really in a very sex-positive discussions uh, discussion on many areas that I think you're going to find fascinating and really compelling and very relevant to your everyday life. Uh, For example, if you're a parent, we talk about sexuality as it relates to children and their growing development and ways that you can best promote a positive, healthy sexual development and the risk we run sometimes of doing just the opposite when we have the best intentions. We're going to talk about pornography, both from a really positive perspective affirming perspective, as well as ways in which it can get out of control. We're going to talk about sexual play and vitality, as well as addiction. Uh, we're going to talk about much, much more. Really, she has a wealth of knowledge. I could have talked to her for hours. I think you're going to find this very interesting, and please enjoy.
1: All right. I'm here today with Dr. Alex Katahakis. So glad to have you on the show today, Alex. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So if you could just start us off, you have probably one of the most interesting specialties probably that we could find, and I wanted to, if you would start off just telling us about a little bit about yourself. I started being interested in healthy sexuality and answering the question of what is healthy sexuality probably in the early to mid-90s. and while I was an intern in my master's program, the only internship I could find on sex and sexuality was one where they were treating sex addiction, which I'd never heard of in 1998. Mm -hmm. And I started working with this population, helping people stop their destructive, compulsive behaviors, and eventually was curious about, you know, where people go from there. How do they restore their sexuality from something that's shameful and broken and damaged to something that's good and true and beautiful for them. So that was sort of the jumping off point for me in my exploration of asking this question about, you know, what is healthy sex? And that's been an evolutionary process now for 20 years. And I still don't know the answer to the question of what is healthy sex, but I do know a lot about sex and sexuality, it turns out. Well, it's great to have you on to be able to talk about it. And I love the dynamic that you're going to try. Often when we talk about sex and addiction, there's just a lot of history around it being something shameful to even talk about, even sexuality sometimes. Yes. A a shamefulness to it. Yes. And I think that's my experience both with patients and with clinicians sometimes. Mm -hmm. People have a hard time talking about what they like sexually, what they don't, what scares them where they limit themselves, what they feel shameful about doing, even though it's arousing to them. And we also have a very, unfortunately, a very poor way of educating our children about sex and sexuality in this country. So it leaves kids to find out about their burgeoning sex by way of their friends or pornography or in other sort of furtive and secretive ways because the only education they get is about the medicalization of sex and sexuality. So don't get mm-hmm. pregnant, don't get STDs, not about the beauty and the pleasure of sex. From a fear base, what not to do, what to be cautious yes. about, who not to become. Right. Um, yes, as opposed to what to do and how to enjoy it and how to do so mindfully and carefully in and, and ways that are safe. Definitely going to want to save some of your time to be able to talk about kids because that's going to be on, on the top of a lot of listeners and parents minds out there to kind of start the dialogue throughout the period you've been in in the field for a long time. Do you see something different about the culture currently right now with there's so much discussion about polyamorous relationships? What do you see about sort of the progression of sexuality in the culture right now? Well, I think it's definitely opening up and changing, and that's one of the positive aspects of Internet pornography, is that it's opened us to a highly accessible world of what's possible, and I think that has helped in some ways to reduce shame for people because they see their communities of other people who like what they like as well. Uh, that, coupled mm-hmm. with the phenomenon of Fifty Shades of Grey, has mm-hmm. more and more people trying different things sexually. So a colleague of mine and I were joking recently that what's previously called vanilla sex, which is considered heterosexual missionary-style position sex, is now an erotic minority because fewer people are just having sex in that you know, narrow prescribed way. And likewise, with the accessibility of sex and sexuality, it's having people rethink questions about monogamy over time, They're thinking about alternative sexual practices and open relationships and things of that nature. So I think we're going through a tremendous sexual revolution. The problem is is that it's not explicit. People have to sort of figure things out on their own because we don't have an overarching educational system that really starts teaching children about sex and sexuality as early as kindergarten, about their bodies and holding hands and boundaries and what they like, so that it's age-appropriate from kindergarten to elementary to middle to high school, so that kids are prepared for sex and sexuality. Instead, they're still getting no messages from home or getting it from porn. Right. Or getting it from school. It's amazing to see how much knowledge the kids have nowadays, even above and beyond many parents. You have kids talking about their friends being pan. You see adults going, what does that mean with big eyes? And I think that just indicates that we're doing a poor job of staying on top of our sexual health is what that comes down to, um, is that we're concerned about our fitness and our diet and our looks and our youth and our skin care and less so about uh, what it means to be sexually healthy over the lifespan. I would love if you would talk a little bit more about the sexual health as we move into as you talk about, I know with kids, sometimes we fear or even with our partners, we fear sometimes the the concept of talking about it and talking about our own predilections might make us personally judged, or we might give information to kids they might not otherwise have, and therefore it's going to influence them in a direction that we don't want them to go. So we think, oh, give them no information and we'll protect them. And I hear what you're saying. That leaves them then open to their own curiosities, which they have, and to seeking out information in ways that might affect them in not the most positive ways. Right. It actually has the opposite effect. So I think where kids are concerned that uh, there's an adage that if you think it's time to tell your kids about sex, you're too late. Um, (laughs) That makes sense. And that's why... You know, talking to them when they're really young about how their bodies belong to them and that their bodily pleasure is their pleasure and that they should do that behind closed doors and not in public. And if somebody tries to touch them, you say no. And just all of those kind of safe conversations when they're kids, like eight, nine years old. And then as they approach puberty, talking to them about sexuality, that your body's going to start changing you're going to grow pubic care. If you're female, you're going to start menstruating. And what exactly that means biologically, um, what menstruation is, and then also what that means in terms of being able to get pregnant and that your body is going to start to change and you're going to start to feel feelings in your body you've never felt before. And these are perfectly natural feelings. And you're going to start liking another girl or a boy, And that's perfectly natural, too. But it's important that you like them, that they're good people, that we know their family. In other words, you're scaffolding them. You're not acting like this isn't going to happen. You're knowing that it is going to happen. And how are you going to do that in a way that scaffolds and protects your child in a way so that they have this experience so that it's sweet and lovely and beautiful for them? Um, they're not going to marry the person they meet at 13 or 14 years old, most likely. (laughs) Um, But they will start to experiment sexually with them. Um, And then being curious instead of dictatorial and asking them, you know, what's it like to have this conversation with me? And how will you know when you're safe? And when will you know it's okay to say yes or no? Or you should know that you can tell me anything and my job is to protect you, not to judge you. And then the parents really have to hold on to themselves when their kids tell them things that's, you know, shocking or scary or even embarrassing for them. To be able to tolerate that when your 14-year-old or 15-year-old comes home and they have a hickey on their neck. You have to remember that you were that age also, and that's sort of an immature way of, you know, bonding and, you know, giggling and being sexual and to be mindful and respectful of it even. Well, and often parents feel that they remember when they were that age, and that's often what scares them. (laughs) They think, oh, my gosh, what I was doing. And so often back then, people had such a, a shameful negative association, in my experience, around the sexual play and the forbiddenness of it and the sexual exploration that even parents' own experiences of their own budding, growing sexuality is so tainted with shame that I hear what you're saying, that that's going to be evoked in them as their child's talking to them. And the more aware they are of their own feelings, the better that they're going to be able to really relate to their child as a resource. Yes. And they were probably having to go through that alone. They didn't have a parent they could talk to about, you know, sweetie, how was your date last night? You know, Oh mom, well, tell me about it, you know, and maybe that girl or boy will say, well, we kissed for the first time. And for the parent to say, that's wonderful, I'm so happy for you, um, is really letting the child know that you are paying attention and that they're carrying you with them as opposed to they have to hide it. Because when it starts to become secretive, shaming or abusive, that's sort of the on-ramp for sexual compulsivity. That's when kids' sexuality can go underground get repressed or you know if they're really struggling because of any kind of relational trauma dissociative and then they start using sex as a way to regulate themselves or it's a sole form of regulation and that has the seeds of the germination for making of someone who's sexually compulsive so mm-hmm. we have to be able to be grown-ups and talk to our kids appropriately at the age they're at about their sexuality And know that they're not going to want to talk to you about it. You're not their friend. But at least they know you're paying attention and that you care and that they matter. Right. And to be aware that their discomfort is really normal and healthy. And that's not something then to then shy away from and then say, well, they're going to be too uncomfortable. I can't have the conversation. They still need to have the conversation or at least know that you're accessible to the conversation. Yes, and we shouldn't be invasive. It's not our business what the sex act was like, whether they liked it or didn't. That gets a little bit too inside of them in a way that they're going to feel invaded by. So you have to be careful about where the boundaries are. You mentioned that you can sometimes recognize in kids where they may move from a more healthy exploratory approach to maybe into a direction that's more individual maybe auto regulating approach. Are there things that you can suggest to parents just to be aware of? You know, isolation is a big thing. Um if your kids are isolating, obviously their computers because anyone has access to internet pornography twenty four seven. And so every kid I've ever talked to says, you know, everyone in high school looks at pornography. And they even make a game out of it while they're put on pornography and then they'll make somebody look at it who's never seen it before. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of this, you know, ooh, gross thing. And they're all giggling and laughing about it. But they've all been introduced to it. They've all seen it. I mean, I've had patients as young as uh, saying that they first saw porn when they were five years old, internet porn. Mm -hmm. And they started looking at it through the duration of their childhood. And by the time they were 21, they had some serious sexual problems. So hopefully it's not that. But, you know, looking at what's on your kid's computer, Internet filters can be helpful. Talking to them also about the fact that you know it's there and you know that they look at it and that you want them to be mindful about how often they look at it and what they're looking at. And just a conversation about what your values are, what the difference between real sex versus pornographic sex Pornographic Mm -hmm. sex is all fantasy and make-believe. It's Hollywood. And that that's Mm -hmm. not really how people often have sex, and it's certainly not how people really often look. So, Mm -hmm. again, you know, you have to have open conversations with them so they understand that, you know, Harry Potter isn't real, Star Wars isn't Mm -hmm. real, and Internet pornography is not real. That makes a lot of sense so that they're educating themselves and not holding themselves to some idea of what sexuality is because of what they're viewing online. and Right. How do you see the effect of porn on adolescents at this day and age? Because certainly that's something that's been increasing and increasing in our population, the exposure with iPhones. So kids today are going to probably have a lot more access and frequency with porn than, say, 10 years ago. And I'm wondering... As a parent, what would you, they're going to have access, that's what you're saying, and it's going to be really hard not to, but probably educating them not only on what they see, but the effects on their body. So could you talk a little bit about the effects that porn could have on the body if not, you know, Um, uh, taken into consideration? Well, it's really the developing brain, as we know from Mm -hmm. neuroscience and Dan Siegel's book, Brainstorm, that the teenage brain is not yet fully formed or myelinated. So the structures are still coming up. um, The myelination is still in action. And so these are very immature brains that can get, the neuronal networks can get tenaciously wired together around anything. And pornography, because it's so novel, it's a form of dopamine based learning. It's, it's a biological situation there. So I think it's fairly inarguable that if someone's looking at anything over and over and over again, they're rehearsing that thing over and over again. And those networks are going to tenaciously wire. So that person or that kid is going to have those images in their head for a long, long time. So mm-hmm. it's detrimental the way anything excessive is detrimental. You know, it's not the pornography, it's the abuse of it. It's not the alcohol, it's the abuse of it. Same with, you know, marijuana or driving recklessly when you're 16, 17 years old. All of it is accessible to these immature systems that are still forming and coming together. Now, I think you could explain that to a teenager and they'd say, yeah, that's really cool and interesting. But it won't stop them from drinking or looking at porn or doing any number of other things. And that's Mm. why I think you have to stay in dialogue with your teenagers and talk to them about what's reasonable. Because if you lock everything down, they'll go do it anyway. They'll find a a more dangerous way to do it. If you're too permissive and liberal, then they don't have any parenting going on. So you've got to find a moderate way of being in relationship with them and talking about things. You know, for Mm -hmm. example... If a kid's going to a party and you know there's going to be alcohol there, a parent might say to their kid, You know, I know that you're likely going to drink, but if you drive drunk, you will never have that car again while you live under my roof. You either take an mm-hmm. Uber with a friend, you don't get into an Uber by yourself, or you call me and I'll come get you. <laughs> right? Right. Whatever. But you whatever give them an avenue. To, Yes. Mm-hmm. And to say, you know, I don't want to see you sloppy drunk, but if you are, mm-hmm. you can't, you absolutely cannot drink and drive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As parents, we're sort of like traffic cops today. You have to think of every possible scenario and then have a reasonable conversation and a solution to how you're going to handle this as a family, right. not this kid on, on its own. Well, including, as you're saying, talking about, you're, you're going to see pornography and being able to talk about it in a way that's unshaming, because that seems to be the constant message. You want to be able to open a dialogue, even about porn that isn't shaming, that's accepting, right. but yet still limiting and still, still in a way that is helping them educate themselves that will, in the back of their mind, they may use porn, but also aware that if they use it for extended period of time, that it could actually impact the way that they're able to have sexual relationships with their boyfriend or girlfriend in the future. Right. And Mm -hmm. especially for boys more than anything. And also, I think what precedes this is the conversation about sex and sexuality that almost no adults will tell you they got from their parents. They will, I ask people all the time when I'm teaching, what were the messages you got about sex and sexuality from your family? And it's almost always nothing. It wasn't talked Mm -hmm. about. And so Mm -hmm. that conversation has to happen, I think, when, you know, kids are 11, 12 years old. Let's talk about your body, your boundaries, what's going to happen, what it means to be sexual, how your body works, so that then the internet porn conversation comes after that. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about porn. Well, you know, when we think about the use of porn, not just only in adolescence, we think about the growing brain going into adulthood and the easy access to porn and how that affects the individual as well as relationships. I definitely see the impact of porn on relationships and how people approach it. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that about maybe the healthy use of porn and how do we know when it maybe goes over the mark and becomes something that is not healthy for the individual or the partner. Well, I think there's something about transparency here. And, you know, people will argue this all sorts of ways. But if pornography is in a relationship, that is a third entity in the relationship, just like a sex toy would be, or anything else of a sexual nature. And so, Talking to each other about, hey, where does pornography fit in our lives? Do you like to watch it? Do I like to watch it? What kind of pornography do you like to look at? Is it something we would watch together? If I'm not available for sex, when you masturbate by yourself, are you looking at it? If so, for how long? Not in a way that's policing or violating of the other person's personal erotic life, but in a way that's informed, that's saying Mm -hmm. that, yeah, we're in this together. And of course, you know, someone might have a higher sex drive than the other party. And if that person enjoys masturbation and they use pornography occasionally, then it shouldn't be this big, shameful, horrible thing. And it shouldn't be taken personally. The dialogue, I think, makes all the difference in the world of what it is, how it's used, how we use it separately and together. Well, that makes a lot of sense and how they use it and how both parties feel about it. And both parties are really considering not, you know, your use of porn threatens me, so therefore stop versus, you know, how is it threatening you? Why is it threatening? And really having it be a relational dialogue on both parties. Right. It becomes threatening when one partner doesn't know about it at all. and They start to find things on the computer And when Mm -hmm. that same partner is wanting to have sex and the person that's looking at porn now excessively is not interested in their partner Mm -hmm. and try as that person might. I mean, I've heard women say, you know, I'll buy sexy lingerie or I'll make overtures or I've tried and tried and tried and I get nothing and it's so frustrating And I can't Mm -hmm. figure out what's going on. And what's going on is that sometimes typically he is taking all of his sexual needs to the computer because he has some issues that he hasn't dealt with. And these are often more people who are more moderately to severely dissociated. They have difficulty with intimacy and therefore sexuality um, and eroticism within a relationship or with another person. Let's just put it that way. So this person might be more avoidant. They may be you know, highly traumatized from childhood trauma. They may also be schizoid at the extreme. And this is a small faction of the population. This is not the majority of people that look at pornography. So I want to be clear about that. There are people who get very stuck in Internet pornography and have a pornography addiction, but that's not generally what goes on. So people have to be in an honest dialogue about what's really happening between the two of them and how it's being used. And I guess also how is it being used to maybe enhance the person's, the self and the other. And maybe that's a marker I hear you know you mentioning is that it's a marker if it's something that's actually enhancing the individual or enhancing the relationship, bringing the sexuality back in versus something that's taking away from the self or taking away right. from the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes, and this is something that couples will do on occasion. They both finding find it arousing and fun, but increases the novelty between the two of them. When I hear it's problematic is typically for women where they feel like the pornography becomes a substitute for them. And if it's at mm-hmm. the extreme, they will really they will say things like, Wow, I feel like he's having an affair. Um, mm-hmm. And he's not. It's mm-hmm. just that he's not having sex with her. All of his sex and sexuality is being used in relation to the laptop. What um, would you recommend to somebody that, that is, you know, out there listening and feels like that's happening in their relationship? Well, I would recommend that they, you know, just, they make a commitment to themselves to shut it down, to see if they can not look at or masturbate to internet pornography for the next 30, 60, 90 days. It's just mm-hmm. like an alcoholic. If you're drinking and your partner says, Hey, I think your drinking's getting out of hand, and you say, Yeah, I think it is also, and that person can stop drinking and it's not a problem, then they sort of crossed a line they maybe shouldn't have crossed for themselves. Mm-hmm. But when people have repeated attempts to stop and they cannot stop, that then tells us something that they are struggling with the effects of the pornography on them. And internet pornography can create psychological effects like depression, anxiety, an inability to get an erection with a real live human being, whereas uh, what we call classic sex addicts already have those problems and the sex addiction becomes a symptom of those early traumatic structures. So they are a little bit different. Pornography addiction is more of a contemporary problem. And, you know, many young men report that if they stop looking at porn, um, their erections are restored anywhere from three to five months, depending on how early they started looking at it and depending on how long they've been looking at it over time. It's different for every individual. All right, Alex, I really appreciate your approach to sexuality. It feels like you're very sex positive and open to personal expressions about all the, I guess, the changing landscape of today. And we've been talking about pornography and I wanted to kind of broaden it and talk about different aspects of sexuality that you see coming up in as a clinical sexologist. You've written a book that involves the concept of aspect dysregulation and how it's impacted by sex. But why don't we talk about your book specifically, if you would. Well, that book um, is called Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation, and it's examining the concept of sex addiction through a regulation theory lens. And from my understanding of the work of scholars like Alan Shore and many, many others, who are looking at infant development from the third trimester, you know, through the first four years, and how the brain and autonomic nervous system are setting up what the literature is showing is that chronic unrepaired relational assault meaning the inability to appropriately regulate an infant over time the mother's stress level the interuterine environment genetics epigenetics um, all of those things can favor addiction if the mother you know in this case cannot appropriately you know repair misattunements or repair stressors, what that does just from a biological perspective is that it sets up the human organism in a way that's less than optimal. And of course, when that's really egregious to the extreme, when you have, let's say, a borderline structure being formed, many of those functions don't repair. People have to learn different ways of managing their affect. But that aside, if you've got chronic unrepaired assaults to the system and a system that grows and changes in a distorted way, that child, you know, teenager, young adult will look for other ways to regulate themselves if they're not getting it from the human beings in their lives. And this is how I think addiction can come to pass, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling or anything else. Uh, Whenever something is being used to regulate ourselves other than our own capacities, we're typically in trouble. We talk about addiction on all sorts of realms and understand it as a way that we kind of manage our own emotions. So to enter in the idea of the, the sexual addiction and regulating yourself through sex makes a lot of sense. There's also you know, some controversy about calling as an addiction when you're related to sex that some people might worry that it pathologizes, et cetera. Can you speak a little bit to that? I think the argument's mostly coming from the field of sexology who suggest that the word addiction is inherently pathologizing and that it closes the conversation down rather than opening it. And I believe any model can be pathologizing if the therapist using it is pathologizing. So, Many people find great relief in the thinking about the problem as being, quote, addictive in that these are adaptive patterns in the brain. I mean, We are highly adaptive creatures and the brain is extremely automatic. I mean, easily, I would venture to say that three quarters of what we do is automatic on any given day, any given moment. And so when you habituate anything, we adapt to it. And these habituations are often born of, as I said, relational trauma or later trauma. So calling it an addiction really speaks to these adaptive patterns in the brain and in the nervous system. And addiction itself really just means a strong predilection for something. So if we're strongly drawn to something, I mean, people say they're addicted to chocolate ice cream or to their iPhones. That's not a misuse of the word. So some people consider it euphemistic, but many people who have the problem, it actually quite defines for them their inability to stop doing the behavior and that it causes them great distress and duress. So we can say they're adaptive strategies. We can call it problematic or compulsive, or we can call it, quote, addictive, Whatever works for the client is what I think is most important, not splitting hairs over nomenclature. What you're saying is it's the experience of the person's inability to stop it and inability to change the habituated pattern and to a point of great distress to themselves or maybe not to themselves, maybe to those around them that might recognize it if they don't. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes, and it's usually both, and the truth is when you habituate something for so long, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, many people Mm -hmm. report not having a capacity for intimacy, not knowing how to be in relationship, to be close, and to put the sexual together with that, so there's a real bifurcation between what they want and like sexually and their ability to connect with another human being. And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about privileging monogamy as much as I am just the ability to connect with another person. And this Mm -hmm. causes people distress and duress. And so they want to find a way out of these problems and There are many models that will help people out of these problems. Some people respond really nicely to a 12-step model, an addiction model. Other people prefer to call it something different or to work in a more motivational interviewing capacity. But all roads lead home. And ultimately Mm -hmm. what we're changing are these neurobiological structures and their functions over time. And that comes from, I think my bias is, is that it comes from relational psychotherapy. It comes from the relationship itself, moving somebody from more kind of auto-regulating your emotions to really u- utilizing maybe the therapist to really... Could you say a little bit more about that? Yes. I mean, it is about being in a therapeutic dyad wherein the therapist is in a co-regulatory process with the client. So both parties are changing as a result of the relationship. And mm-hmm. the learning is not a cognitive learning. It's an affective, implicit, right brain, autonomic learning that's taking place. So the therapist mm-hmm. has to be willing to use themselves in a very deeply intimate way with their client, so that they're feeling the other person and that person mm-hmm. feels felt because that is what ignites these circuits that are often uncoupled and not functional in those people who are struggling with any addiction, because we're usually looking at moderate to severe dissociation. It's not just a behavioral problem, which is what many want to reduce it to, it is a neurobiological problem born of relationship. So it can only really be fixed in relationship. And it sounds like for you, by using the word addiction, one of the things that helps you is it is actually it will be shaming to the client or to the individual rather than shaming instead of it being something inherently that they are just sort of actively not stopping, if you will. Right. Well, it's that, you know, for some people, it's a relief when they think about addiction because I tell people all the time, this is not just your psychology. You're not a bad person. Maybe your behaviors are, quote, bad. You're hurting other people because you're lying or hurting them. But these are neurobiological constructs. These are habits that you've developed over time and even though your your sort of higher self your cognition tells you you don't want to be doing it the limbic part of the brain the body is incessantly drawn to it over and over again and that is more powerful because the seeking of the experience is where the, you know, adrenaline, dopamine, excitatory strategies of our neurochemistry come into play, and those are powerful forces to stop, and we all have that experience all the time in minor ways where we say, you know, I'm not going to eat that thing, and then we start obsessing about it, and then we end up eating it, and then we eat it, and we feel bad about it, but try as we might, (laughs) we tell ourselves we're not going to do it, we do it anyway. Now, imagine if that was so compulsive that you couldn't not stand up to it. It's very, very painful. Well, and I guess the one question would be, if you think about using a 12-step model with alcohol or food, you can follow the logic of abstinence. And I guess as you promote such healthy sexuality and not the cutting off, how do you handle that in terms of the treatment of something that's moved to an addiction? Yeah, well, I think for some people, they're willing to be sexually abstinent for 30, 60, sometimes 90 days because they're just so tired of doing what they've been doing and they kind of want to rest and their brains and their bodies need a rest. And it also gives us therapeutically an opportunity to look at what's going on is there are there mood disorders is there personality disorder that's really driving these compulsive behaviors more than anything because the person is hypersexual and maybe they're also narcissistic and Those two things can go hand in hand sometimes. So it gives us an opportunity to get the lay of the land, if you will. And then there have to be conversations about, well, what is healthy sexuality for each individual? So it's not a one-size-fits-all prescription. Um, It really is about getting clear, helping the person get clear about what their values are in relationship. And then what are the things that sexually arouse them? And do those things align with what their values are? And then how does that feel in their body when they're talking about it and thinking about it? Is it arousing in a shameful way, in a way that's sort of aligned with their destructive behaviors? Or is it arousing in a way that feels good and exciting and something they'd want to share with someone that they enjoyed being with? So this is a you know a particular way of working that takes time with each individual also so that they can map it out together with a therapist and be clear about what their sexual health plan is and what goes on you know, their list where they want to wait and see what happens and whether they can incorporate that thing in or not. But this Mm -hmm. is an ongoing process. It's not static. Um, It's highly dynamic. It's meant to be examined, we could say, once a quarter (laughs) to see, hey, how's that going for you? Is it working? What isn't working? And then, of course, if you fold a partner in on this, process then you've got a more complex conversation so you know the answer is that it really takes time and each individual gets to determine what their healthy sexuality is hopefully in relation to their therapist a trusted other perhaps a sponsor if they're in a 12 step program so they're in consultation about it you really help the listener and me understand the concept of how to use a 12 step program at which I think would feel so much less threatening than the idea of if you have a sexual compulsion, you're going to need to give up that completely conform to some more mainstream idea of what sexuality is quote supposed to be. And that's not at all what you're saying.
0: No, not uh, at all.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I think that just perpetrates, you know, a different kind of problem along the way. I mean, sexuality is, sort of our right. It's at the core of our personhood, I think. It's an incredible source of pleasure. And there are many, many studies coming out now about longevity, uh, brain health, uh, heart health. I mean, you name it. It's just good for our bodies to have sex because of the neurochemical release. So how do we do it in ways that are not shaming to us or others and is not destructive to ourselves and other people? Uh, Unless, of course, you know, the person is choosing to have shame and humiliation dynamics in their sexuality and they're clear about that and because that's part of their, you know, kink lifestyle, then I, I think what we're talking about here is really intentionality. What is your intention? What do you want for your life? And can you have a conversation about it in an adult way where you're clear about what's really true for you? And it also makes a lot of sense with the idea of if something is creating a level of distress for you or someone you're involved in, the idea of pulling back and holding on it for a period of time to, you mentioned, to be able to see what all comes out. What is, is this behavior becoming habituated and compulsive because there's this deeper element going on, whether it be trauma or disconnect and that giving somebody a period of time to really more richly explore what's going on so that they know that what they're responding to sexually is what really is deeply ingrained with what they value and what they want to be experiencing. Yes, and that they're making a choice because oftentimes people who become sexually addicted and compulsive do so out of duress, out of trauma, Mm -hmm. and it becomes this repetition pattern over and over and over again. And so there's a rigidity to it. It doesn't Mm -hmm. allow for sexual exploration and saying, gosh, you know, I don't even know if I like that thing. I've just been eating it my whole life because my grandmother said it was good for me. And wow, there are all these other things that I could be trying. And I want to try all these other things. And maybe after I try them, I still go back to grandma's recipe because ultimately that's what I like. But um, (laughs) at, at, at least there is an exploration and an opening up of possibility and some critical thinking around it. Could you also talk a little bit about the idea you mentioned before we got started that at times people, uh, one of the advantages of being in a sexual relationship with somebody or with a partner is to be able to have the sexuality, including releasing not only sexual desire, but sometimes emotions and containing themselves and regulating your own emotions or co-regulating your own emotions with somebody else. Could you talk a little bit about the idea of just regulating your emotions, maybe your anxiety? Yeah. Sure. I mean, many people seek sexual closeness to strengthen their connection rather than sever it with others. And so we can get comfort and pleasure from a partner or somebody we trust when we're reaching out from a stable sense of ourself already. So the idea is that we're enhancing our well-being, we're improving our mood, we're managing our anxiety, We want to be seen or loved or validated. So there's a playful component to sex when it's co-regulatory as opposed to sex addiction where sex is used in a solitary way to chronically regulate this dysregulated self. And oftentimes what happens for those people is that they become more dysregulated because they start doing things that make them feel dirty or bad or ashamed or against their value system And not because they're not open to the thing, but because they really just don't want to be doing it. So Mm -hmm. when people who aren't addicts are upset or hurt or angry, relating sexually can become challenging for them because what they need to restore is their co-regulated sense of self with their partner. So we have to find each other. We have to repair the disconnect. um, And that's what allows us to become more Sexually connected and to use our partners in a way that is, you know, co regulatory when it comes to sex. Do you ever see, at times, you can see within a couple or a dyad maybe one partner feeling at times a little used for that, where one partner maybe experiences a great deal of stress or anxiety and frequently turns to the partner almost with this expectation of, releasing that with a partner, which at times I think what you're saying could be a really reach out and a collaborative thing to do, but at times can get a little off kilter. What are your thoughts about that? I think when it's off kilter, the person who is using it in a way that makes it unbalanced probably needs to look at that. But I think we all have sex for all sorts of reasons all the time. And if our partner is feeling needy or sad or hurt or needs soothing in some ways and we choose to be sexual with them because it's for the good of the whole, it's part of keeping the relationship stable, and it's loving also, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But Mm -hmm. if, however, then, you know, you're feeling needy, or you need to be comforted and your partner doesn't reciprocate, then that might be a problem also, even though there shouldn't be a one-to-one correlation with these things at all. So Mm -hmm. whenever anything gets unbalanced, then that's when you need to have a conversation about it. And this goes back to where we started with teens and sex and kids, that the more we talk about our sex and sexuality, the easier it is for us to get clear about what's what And that changes all the time and then it liberates us to be free during the sexual act so we're not thinking or wondering or mind reading or resenting while we're having sex because that's not the time to bring it up. So I would say, you know, the more we talk about it, the more current we are, the more it also helps us get clear about what we like today because what we liked yesterday sexually may not be what our bodies like or need today. No, that, that makes wonderful sense. It really does. And it... It seems like it just gives so much room to individuals out there in sexual relationships to open up dialogues about not only just sexual desire and sexual proclivities and interests, but also what's going on as we're having sex inside of us, the positive and the negatives and the things we need from it. Yeah, and to be able to share that with our partner afterwards. Alex, this conversation has been really, really intriguing, and I think our listeners will gain so much from the dialogue. Well, I'm glad. Thank Mm. you so much for having me. Is there anything else about the book? I would say the book is a culmination of my work in the field of sex addiction for the last, really, 20 years now where I've synthesized the work of Alan Shore in Regulation Theory uh, with the work of Patrick Carnes, who put sex addiction on the map. And I think what the book does is really examine where the field of addiction has gone, how it shifted and changed, and how affective neuroscience has really informed our understanding of the neurobiological substrates to all psychopathology, not just addiction. And so I hope the reader goes on the journey that I intended to take them on where they see you know, how these things get set up in infancy, what happens later in childhood, how culture impacts our sex and sexuality, and then what a dyadic relational treatment looks like when you're using affect regulation theory. Wow, that's amazing. I really appreciate the time you took to, to write that book. And I think our listeners, as well as many other people, are gaining so much insight from it. Well, thank you. I appreciate your appreciation of it because it did take a lot. I can imagine it did. Yeah. It is so... It is so comprehensive. I think that's one reason I got excited about the book. Because oh, good. the good. The, the therapists and we're so focused on trying to bring the science, neurosciences and attachment and emotions and how they all relate to one another throughout the life cycle. And your book really, really did an amazing job of that. Great. Thank you.
0: I want to thank Alex for joining us on the show today. I got a wealth of knowledge, and I hope you did too. For those of you that want more information or to contact Alice Katahakis, you could find her at centerforhealthysex.com. There you will find information about her treatment center as well as just a wealth of information of the things we talked about today with regard to sex addiction, sex therapy, etc. In fact, you can even take online tests to assess your own sex addiction or an internet sex addiction or love addiction. Uh, She also has an ability to subscribe to daily meditations to sort of cool that right brain as we talked about it on the show. All right, and I would uh, also love it if you guys would go and subscribe at your favorite podcast player. And if you do, it would be great if you could rate and review. You could also find us at therapistuncensored.com and there you can join our email list. All right, appreciate you listening and I'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Olwell, and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.